0: my name is Matthew. Uh, I am a primary care pharmacist. I work for Kaiser Permanente. Um, I am kind of like a mid-level practitioner in that I see my own patients. um, I manage chronic disease states. I manage diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma, chronic pain. Um, People ask me all the time, uh, what's it like working in a pharmacy? And I tell them, I don't know. I haven't worked in a pharmacy in like five years. Um, So, when people ask me, well, what do you do? I end up going on this really long conversation trying to explain it, and just like, I just, I just do drugs. That's what I do. I do yeah. drugs. Okay. Um, and this past year, uh, our work started measuring productivity um, and gauging how much work we were doing compared to what was expected of a pharmacist working in my clinic. And this was a way to try and standardize across different regions, because Kaiser is a huge organization just in Northern California. Um, We have, I think, like 13 million members. Um, It's a huge organization, and they need to standardize the expectations of what a pharmacist should be able to accomplish in a diabetes clinic, in a chronic pain clinic. So it was a way to make sure that each person is doing work, right? Right? Um, So this came up in my six-month evaluation Uh, I had with one of my supervisors Because the first time they ran the numbers Remember, it's a brand new metric uh, They run the numbers And my productivity In one of my chronic pain clinics Is just over 1% Yeah, that was a fun conversation Um, Like, well, you know we, We know you're doing something, right? Like, what's... What's going on? I'm like, well, hey, you know, I we, fortunately we keep a really long spreadsheet of all the patients we work with, right? So I can be like look on this day when I was here, I touched these 50 patients. On this day I was here, I touched these 47 patients. I'm like, okay, we we know you're doing work. There's clearly though like some disconnect between this metric and the work you're doing. Um, because they found out at the next review for one of my coworkers, also in that clinic, their productivity in that clinic was about 1.8 percent. I'm like, okay, something's not quite right. Uh, you know, in the end, um, in the workplace, it all comes down to money, right? Somebody is paying you to do a job, and if you're not doing your job, they're not going to keep paying you. Uh, In my case, um, it was a simple issue of changing how we code our visits. So we just had to put in a four-digit number in the chief complaint area, and now all of a sudden, we're getting credit. And over the next month, my productivity skyrocketed into several hundred percent. Okay, well clearly the metric isn't perfect, right? Because I'm not three pharmacists. I am one man Um, But at least it was showing that like i'm doing something and i'm providing value to that workplace And for those of us that work Work is a huge part of our lives. I mean we may work 10 20 40 80 hours a week But work isn't the only thing in our lives So if you were to get a six-month evaluation for your productivity for Christ, if we were to do a review of the work that you had done, what would your productivity be? What would your percent of an expected Christ follower's work are you doing? Let's look at it this way. Our time at church is about an hour and a half long, give or take. If the Valuys are feeling particularly verbose, we might be here a little bit longer. If Joel Robinson is preaching and he wants to go home and see the Browns lose, we might be getting out of here earlier. Okay? But let's just say, on average, we're here for an hour and a half on Sundays, and let's say we make it 52 Sundays out of the year. We never miss one. Add in Christmas Eve, an hour and a half, 52 times a year, plus Christmas Eve, brings us to about 80 hours at church. Per year. Now, some of you are thinking, 80 hours at church? I'm doing all right. That's a, at least a couple of rounds of golf I could have had. No, I'm doing all right. But let's look at it this way. Accounting for your eight hours of sleep—you're all getting eight hours, right? Hopefully. Accounting for eight hours of sleep over the year, you're awake for 5,840 hours per year. What percentage of that awake time is spent in a church service? percent. 1.3 percent of your awake time is here at church. And if you say, okay, well, I'm in a life group, great now. You're at 2 percent. If everything that takes place—or if everything that we're doing for the kingdom of God takes place between 10.30 in the morning and noon on a Sunday, we are dramatically underperforming. Now, not everyone here has a job, okay? Some of you have put in your time, and you're retired. Thank you. I appreciate it. Enjoy your retirement. Some of you, school is your job, okay? You're putting in more work, really, than some of the rest of us, because you're at school all day, and then you have to go home and do all your extracurriculars, and then you have to study, and then you have to get up in the morning, and your day is not really a 9 to 5. Your day is more like a 6 to 10 all the way around. You may be a domestic engineer, and you may be responsible for the upbringing of your children. But even if you're not working a typical nine-to-five, this still applies, because in the end, it comes down to this. If you are only living for Christ when you're on this campus, you're not doing the work that's expected of you. So today I want to talk a little bit about using our gifts outside of the church. Each of us has been given different gifts and abilities—passions, experiences—that we are used to—we are to use, sorry, to further the kingdom of God. We're to make use of them by building the kingdom right here, where we are. And not just in this church, but to take it outside and in the community, establish the kingdom of God. So to dive into this, we're going to look at a parable in Matthew, the best gospel, found in chapter 25, Uh, and we're going to start with verses 14 through 18. This is the parable of the bags of gold. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability— then he went on his journey, and the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the man with two bags gained two more. But the man who received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So let's start at the beginning of this. It says, again, it will be. What's it? Okay. It is the kingdom of heaven. If you go to the parable before this, okay, it's very clear that Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of heaven will be like, okay? So when he says here, it will be like the man going on his journey, he's saying the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on his journey. This takes place shortly after the disciples and his entire entourage had just come into Jerusalem. Okay? You've just had Palm Sunday. You've just had the triumphant entry. All the crowds are singing his name. The disciples think, like, the kingdom is coming soon, right? They ask him, they're like, so, like, is it now? Like, what are we doing? They, you know, they think that things are about to get serious in the kingdom-building business, and they want to know, like, what's, what's this going to look like? So Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a man Who goes on a journey, okay? And he gives them these gifts, each according to his ability. So the first point I want to make is this: that God gives us all different gifts. Okay? No two one of us are the same. We have different abilities, and it's with those and with those different abilities come different responsibilities. We're not all charged with doing the same thing with our gifts. And Paul expanded on this in his first letter to the Corinthians. And there he talks about the spiritual gifts. He says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, uh, the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom— To another, a message of knowledge by means of that same Spirit. To another, faith. To another, gifts of healing, miraculous powers, prophecy. This goes on and on. And Paul lists out all the different spiritual gifts. And then he goes on to say, all of these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. He, the Spirit, determines. And he then—he, Paul, sorry—then talks about people with different gifts as different parts of the body. We—if you look in your Bible, it's kind of separate these into two, you know, different sections, but it's just a letter, right? Remember, it's just a text. So Paul is flowing from one thought into the next. He's flowing from talking about the different spiritual gifts to using them as different parts of the body. Paul didn't write, like, headers in his Bible, in his letter, right? He was like, now we're going to talk about the different spiritual gifts. No, it's just a letter— Okay, it's all one text. So Paul goes on and says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you a part of it. And God has placed in the church apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, guidance, and all different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? We shouldn't get hung— The point is this. We shouldn't get hung up on the fact that one servant got more gold than the other. Right? One gets five, one gets two, one gets one. And we tend to think, like, oh, well, this person, you know, clearly, you know, deserved more because we're, like, in America, we're so obsessed with wealth and money. We focus on that, and that's not the point. The point is each person gets something different. It's not that some get more than others. Different people get different gifts, and that's the way that God wants it. God wants us to have different abilities to use them together. Now, I've intentionally used this translation of the parable because it refers to the gifts as bags of gold. Because in the Greek, how it's written, it uses the word talents, which has an entirely different meaning today. A talent in this parable is just a weight, okay? We often talk about this as the parable of the talents. But a talent is just like saying he gave them five kilograms of gold. He gave this one two pounds of gold. We take the word talent... And we put our language on it. And then we get confused, thinking, you know, God is saying, like, he gives some people more talents and makes Sharon more talented than the rest of us. And that's not the point. The point is simply each person is different. And the importance is not what the gift is, but how we use it. It's what we do with the gift that we're given. So the first point is that each of us is different. And when we think about using our gifts in the workplace, and by the way, again, the workplace, I mean anything that's not here, it's important for you to be you. Um, I got selected to be on a committee. It's called a UBT. A UBT is a unit-based team. And our goal is essentially to take problems uh, in, like, workflows and... um, issues with how we uh, interact with patients and discuss them in this meeting and create a strategy for trying to improve them and improve our metrics and make Kaiser the best place to work and the best place for patients and you know there's the whole list of things we're supposed to do. And I did not really want to be on this committee. Um, sitting around talking about like oh well, I really think we should do this This, like drives me nuts. I I'm much more like let's let's just do it, right? Like there's a there's an issue let's just make it happen. But it's important to have committee because not everybody is the same as me. Not everybody's going to see it the same way. Not everybody's going to want the same outcome. So I'm like, okay, I got chosen by my peers to be on this committee for some reason, and uh, my role in this committee is is very very small in what I end up actually doing because I don't often chime into the conversation about like how I feel about this workflow and whether I feel like my time is being valued, and I just don't get into this stuff. But every time we work on a different goal, they always come to me at the end and they go, okay, we want to fix, you know, how we're sending out messages to patients. What's our goal? And they all look at me because I'm apparently the wordsmith who says, here's all of what you're talking about. Boom, here's your goal. And lay it out into a concrete, what we call a smart goal. Specific, measurable, attainable. Our, what's our Realistic, Thank you. And T is time-bound. I'm thinking about this. Give me a break. (laughs) Um, So I take all of what they're talking about, and I put it down into this. And every time they're like, wow, that's amazing. Like, how did you do that? I'm like, I don't know. You just talked about this for 30 minutes, and then I put it into a sentence. They find that valuable. That's apparently a skill that I have. So I do it. I don't know Why? But they keep me on there just so I can do that. The point is this. You be you. You don't have to be the person that takes all of the feelings and everything and makes a sentence out of it. You don't have to be the person that makes the goal. You don't have to be whatever it is. You be true to who you are. Jesus continues in the parable. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you have entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. How does the master respond? Well done, good and faithful servant. Faithful is like a judgment of his action, like he was true to what the master had wanted him to be doing with it. He says, you have been faithful with a few things, Apparently, five bags of gold to a master is a few things. Uh, Five five bags of gold is a few things. Jesus is making the point, like, the master has a lot of wealth. The master has a lot of money. The master has a lot that he can dole out here. Five bags is a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. All right. Five-bag guy gets a pretty good uh, response from the master. How about the two-bag guy? Second man comes. He said, master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. How does his master reply? You did pretty well. Not as good as, you know, the guy with five bags. I would have expected five bags from you too, but, you know, I guess that's fine. No! He gives the exact same response. There's no difference in the phrasing from the servant who gained five bags to the servant who gained two more bags of gold right? Jesus doesn't look at it and make a value judgment based on the fact that one got five and one got two. The point is not how much they created, but the fact that they were faithful with the gift that they were given. Both servants increase their master's capital by a hundred percent. Does the master care that the first servant earned three bags more than the second? No, right? Not at all. We see the master respond with the same words. So, to the master, the two have performed equally well and are equally entitled to the joy of the master. Both get the same reward of being in charge of many things, being entrusted by the master. So, this is the second point. God isn't concerned that you have different gifts, what God is concerned about is what you do with those gifts. And we see that especially in the third servant. The third servant, then the man who received one bag of gold came. Master, he said. He starts the same way, Master, and then goes off the rails. He says, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out, and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here it is. Here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and I gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him, and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has... Will be given more, and they will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Woof. Okay, this is not like somebody who committed some heinous crime. Okay, this is not a murderer who gets cast out. This is a guy who just didn't do anything with the gift that he was given. And he's called wicked, and lazy, unproductive. And he's thrown out by the master. This servant is gripped by fear. What drives this servant to do this? Okay? Because we often just jump right to, okay, what happens? But how does he end up at this point where he says, like, dig a hole, dig a hole, put the money in it, leave it for a long time, however many years this is. He's afraid of losing the master's money and coming back to him with nothing. Okay, this servant looks at the scenario and sees the worst possible outcome. The worst possible outcome is, I invest this and try and use your gold, and I end up with nothing. I end up broke, and then I come back to you, and I have zero. And he's so paralyzed by his fear of the worst-case scenario that he doesn't even think to do the simplest thing he could have done, right? The the, banker—I'm sorry, the master immediately says, like, Really? Like, just put it in the bank. It'll earn me some interest. Like, you could have at least given me that sort of profit. But he's so paralyzed by the worst-case scenario that he doesn't even do the easiest um, way of investing the money. So he ends up missing out on doing anything with the gift that he's given— and while he hopes that simply returning that gift back to the master is going to be enough, he's instead rebuked for not even doing what the master considers the bare minimum. Even the, this is the point. Even the master could have lent the money to a banker, right? The master didn't need to involve the servant at all to lend his money to a banker. So what ends up happening is the master is better off if he had never even involved that servant with that talent, okay, with that bag of gold, he could have just here banker done, earn me some interest. I'm going away. How often do we relate to that third servant and be paralyzed by our fear? We worry about the worst possible outcome and never, then never make use of our own gifts. I mean, this third servant sat on this gift for a long time. We don't know the time frame. Jesus just says the master was gone a long time, long enough for both servants to double their capital. He literally buries it in the ground in the story. And how many of us are just sitting on our gifts, storing them away in an attic or a basement or burying them, (laughs) thinking, well, at least, at least I didn't drive people away from the church if we think that God is going to be pleased simply because we didn't mess it up, we're going to be in for a brutal awakening. Because we see Jesus warn, whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have even what they have will be taken away from them. And this can be a little challenging for us to interpret sometimes because, again, we look at the story and we think about money, right? Because we're putting our cultural context on it and we, like, Money drives everything. But Jesus here isn't talking about the rich becoming richer at the expense of the poor, right? He's not talking about money. The parable's never been about money. From the beginning, the bags of gold, the capital that's given to the servants, are a metaphor for our spiritual gifts. And if we ignore our gifts, if we fail to use a gift that we're given, you forfeit that gift. In contrast to this, if we take our gift and we use it, we grow it, and we practice, and we nurture it, you'll find that that gift grows and expands, and you get better at it, and that gift becomes an incredibly powerful force to build the kingdom of God. So this brings me to the third point. We're to be using our gifts— And if you're here and you're thinking, okay, well, I help in AV, and I help in ushering, or I do worship, or the Sunday grill, that's good, but again, that's just 1.3% of your awake time. And if all you're doing is using your gift at 1.3%, you're just depositing that for interest. This is the bare minimum. Sitting in here on a Sunday— is what Jesus says is the bare minimum. This is depositing your gift in a bank for interest. So what does it look like to double your capital? What does it take to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? It requires a mindset of doing everything with the intent of building the kingdom of God. Again, we go back to Paul. When Paul came to Corinth, he stays with Achilla and Priscilla. He works with them as tent makers, because they shared the same trade as him. He uses this time while he's working, supporting himself, earning money, to build this relationship with Achilla and Priscilla, who go on to help Paul establish the gospel in Ephesus and minister to Apollos, and I don't need to rehash Valoui's entire sermon about this. Go watch it on the church page. It's great. Um, you can look it up for yourself. But Paul does all of this. He builds this relationship while working. Paul didn't have a separate work life and a Christ life. He doesn't wear two hats. He lives that one life at the same time. And so for us in the same, same way— we need to be building relationships with people outside the church. The kingdom doesn't grow, it doesn't expand if we're not taking it outside these walls. Okay? The church walls are not moving on their own. The church body does not grow on its own. You have to spread it. You have to build it. It takes intent. It takes work. It's scary because you might fail. But that's what we're called to do. How do we do this? We go back to the parable. Whether you're in here or you're in the workplace, you need to be you. Use the gifts that you are given and work in a way that you are created. For some reason, people think I'm good at teaching. And so at work, we started having med students from Boston University come rotate through with us. And they're like, Matt, you're a good teacher. You should teach them about whatever clinic you're working in. It tends to be about chemical dependency. I'm like, okay, sure. If they want to learn about addiction stuff, great. So I just kind of talk at them for like four hours And every time at the end, I'm like, this is amazing! You taught me so much! This was a great med review! I loved it! And then I get, like, reviews from the person that oversees all of the med students. Like, oh, that that guy that taught the chemical dependency, they, they really like that. And I'm like, I just talk to people. I don't really know what you're talking about. But okay, sure. If that's a gift that I have, I'll use it. If you have the gift of leadership, lead at work. If you have the gift of wisdom or knowledge, share it with your coworkers. If you have the gift of helps, help others succeed at work. Teaching, mercy, hospitality, these are all needed in a work environment. They're not confined to a physical church. My favorite is exhortation. Exhortation. I have the gift of exhortation. Exhortation, I don't actually, but exhortation is just a fancy way of saying you have the words to comfort or encourage somebody. Boy, we need some encouragement in the workplace. At least where I do, where I work. Point number two, it's not what the gifts are, it's what you do with them. Don't worry about trying to be a leader if leadership isn't one of your gifts. I would never try to help with administration. It is not something I'm good at, although you clearly need it in a corporate environment. But I'm just terrible, terrible. I would never want to be in charge of anything admin-related. And they figured this out very quickly, and they're like, "No, never mind. Right? They just not for you. You have to play to your strengths, okay? And if you don't know what your strengths are, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, hey, great. There's this test that we can do for you. Uh, go online to the scfpc.org website. There's a big banner that says Shape. Take your shape test." It's a self-test, and it will help you self-identify the way, the ways uh, that God has crafted you to do his work. And if you use the gifts that you have, you will bring value to your workplace. Okay? I don't try and do admin stuff. I help with teaching, and apparently, like— I guess that would almost be prophecy. Prophecy is delivering the message that's needed, like, at that time. So I deliver the message of, here's exactly what we're going to do. So maybe that's that's using that at work. I'm not sure. But if you use the gifts that you have, people will see that. And then you point back to God, who's the one who gives you that gift. And in that same vein, you also need to value everyone else's different gifts. So this is especially for anyone who manages or supervises or otherwise, you know— kind of overseas people, whether it's, again, at work, in a volunteer setting, wherever it is. Not all of your team are going to be good with administration. I keep using that because I'm terrible. I really am. I'm sorry. Um, Whether you're in charge of them or not, when you appreciate others on your team who are using their gifts, acknowledge it. Call it out when you see it. Build them up. Give them the praise that we see Jesus give the servants here. Because if we're to be Christ to those around us, if we're to bring the kingdom here and make God known, then we need to show others the same regard that we expect God to show us. Because for many of our co-workers, we are their first— sorry—we are their first glimpse— of what Jesus looks like. So let you be you. For, uh, sorry, you be you. Use the gifts that you have. Um, recognize, especially in those around you, that it's not about having a particular gift, it's about how you use the gift that you have. Faithful use of a gift is more important than a specific outcome. And finally, do it all the time. Every coworker, every customer, every patient, every person that you interact with outside of this church, serve them with the love of Christ. Now, I admittedly am not good at this either. I work with uh, mostly wonderful people. There are some that great on my nerves, and my wife sees me come home and she's like, "Oh, you must have been in Gilroy today." And I'm like, "Yep, yeah, you know it." You know, there's just certain people that you're like, oh, I want to strangle you in the loving name of Jesus Christ. And uh, just, you, you can't do it, right? So this is—it's hard, okay? It's hard. Uh, not, not perfect. Don't worry about it. Um, but it should be our goal, even if we're not there yet, it should be our goal to serve and love every single person that we encounter just the way Christ would. So when we recognize our own gifts— Use them faithfully inside and outside the church and show love, show the love of Christ to each and every person that we interact with. When it comes time for our final evaluation, not only will we have a better productivity percentage, but we may also hear, well done, good, and faithful servant. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are all gifted differently, that we are not a church of all apostles or all leaders or all prophets, but that each of us is given different gifts. We pray that you would stir in our hearts the desire to use these gifts, not just when we're here, but God, in every part of our lives, in every corner, every area, every place that we go, every person that we meet, God, may we serve and love them, as you have created us to do. Let us build your kingdom. Let us bring your love here and let you be known among the people. We pray this in your name. Amen.